Hello and welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. My name is Nicholas Schaefer and we are in season six. This is episode nine, Information Theory. Today may end up feeling like something of a detour, but I'll try to tie today's subject material back to the rest of the season at the end of the episode. And I'm going to be drawing primarily on two sources today. One is John R. Pierce's book, Introduction to Information Theory, Symbols, Signals, and Noise. And the other is James V. Stone's book, Information Theory, A Tutorial Introduction. And if you were going to start out by reading just one book about this subject, I would suggest Stone's book. Let's lay down some basic concepts for information theory and start with the bit. A bit is a measure of information. And it's also the amount of information that's needed to decide between two equally plausible or probable outcomes. To illustrate the meaning of a bit, let's take probably the simplest possible example, which is that of the forking path. The idea is that you're at the start of a path, and the path that you're about to go down has a very particular character. Namely, every time you go a certain distance, let's say one mile, you always arrive at a fork in the road. And the forks always present you with just two options, left or right. And let's say that there are three such sets of forks. If you are able to look down on the path from above, it would look like a very regular tree-shaped structure. At the start of the path, there's just one option. You need to go straight. At the first fork, one option turns into two options. And at the second set of forks, the path splits into four paths. Finally, at the third fork, the path splits into eight paths, and the paths end one mile later. At the end of only one of these paths is your friend's house, which is where you hope to arrive. Given that you can't actually look down on the path from the sky, how much information do you need to be able to arrive safely at your friend's house? What would a message from your friend describing how to get there look like? He might say something like, go left, then right, then right, or more simply just left, right, right. Each of these three pieces of this message gives you the information that you need to decide between two equally plausible choices from your perspective. Should I go left or right? So in total, the message contains three bits of information. Before you receive the message, each of the eight path termini are equally plausible from your perspective. Given the three bits of information, you've been able to narrow down eight equally plausible choices to just one, the one specific path that leads to your friend's house. Notice that two, which is the number of equally plausible alternatives, left or right, at each point, to the power of three, the number of bits of information in your friend's message, equals eight, which, as we've said, is the total number of equally plausible alternatives before you receive the information. In information theory texts, this relationship is commonly expressed by taking the logarithm base two of both sides of this equation, such that the number of bits of information is equal to the logarithm base 2 of the number of equally plausible alternatives that the information can help you to disambiguate. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between information and entropy, 
because if you read about information theory, you will always come across the term entropy. And this term is also used in statistical physics, but if you haven't studied statistical physics, then entropy may not even be in your vocabulary, and the concept may seem quite mysterious. Entropy is a measure of uncertainty. The higher uncertainty, the higher the entropy. Relatedly, information is a measure of uncertainty, but in the opposite direction. Adding information reduces uncertainty. So we see that information and entropy are two sides of the same coin, or in other words, two quantities with the same units but opposite signs, and they're both related to uncertainty. The founder of information theory, Claude Shannon, summarized this relationship by saying that, quote, information is the resolution of uncertainty, close quote. In its history, information theory used to be referred to commonly as communication theory. So let's talk about the basic setup of communication as it's discussed in information theory. What we have discussed thus far doesn't obviously suggest that communication is a major part of information theory, and I'll first describe the basic elements of a communication process, and then we'll talk about a few examples of what communication means in this context. As we will see, many processes, not all of them obviously related, can be thought of as communication. The basic setup for a communication process has the following elements, and we'll use the above example of the eight paths to make these concepts more concrete. First of all, there's a sender, which in this case is your friend who's trying to tell you how to get to his house. Next, there's a message. The directions to get to his house were left, right, right. The message is given in terms of symbols or a vocabulary. And depending on how you look at it, the symbols in this message might be the words left and right, or the letters L, E, F, T, R, I, G, and H, where the final T was left off because it was already present in the word left. Represented in this way, the message is not conveyed very efficiently. And especially when communication over long distances was very low bandwidth, compressing messages so that they could be conveyed efficiently was of paramount importance. In fact, even now in the age of relatively high bandwidth communication, all kinds of compression schemes are used to maximize the efficiency of communication. So how do we maximize the efficiency of communication? That brings us to the next step in communication, which is encoding or compression. A simple, in this case, efficient code for the above message could be the following. Map the entire word left to a zero and the entire word right to a 1. Since left and right are the only possible directions for this kind of message, this encoding is entirely general in this context in the sense that it can be used to convey any of the eight possible such messages that you might want to send or receive. As such, this is an example of so-called lossless compression. The next step in communication is the message that's actually sent. In this case, left, right, right, would be mapped to 011. That message would be sent over a channel. And there are two types of channels that are important in communication theory or information theory the noiseless channel and the noisy channel. Real channels are always noisy in the sense that you can't guarantee that the exact same encoded message that was sent by the sender will be received by the receiver. The noiseless channel is the limit of low noise and is what we will discuss here, where the encoded message is always received faithfully by the receiver. 
which brings us to the next element in a communication, the receiver, who has two jobs. One is to receive and decode the message and then interpret the message. In this case, that's you. So you receive the message 011 and you decode it into the message left, right, right. And you interpret that message as the directions for the path to follow to your friend's house. As we've seen, the decoding is just the inverse mapping that was used in the encoding to recover the original message from the encoded message. In this case, as I mentioned, 011 gets mapped to left, right, right. If the message is encoded using lossless compression over a noiseless channel, then the received and decoded message is guaranteed to be the same as the original message. As I mentioned, in the real world, all channels are noisy, and sometimes lossy compression is preferred. Because it can be used to very efficiently compress a message and result in a good enough message being received on the other end. To overcome noise, very clever error-correcting codes have been devised, which we may discuss in a future episode. Okay, let's go over a few more realistic examples. The classic historical example is that of telegraphy, where the letters of the English language were mapped onto combinations of dots and dashes in the so-called Morse code. Morse code was devised before information was well understood and formalized into information theory by Claude Shannon. Nonetheless, as is often the case, before formal theories emerge, people apply good intuitions to solve practical problems. In this case, a key intuition regarding how a code like Morse code should be constructed is that more common letters should be mapped to shorter encodings. So, for example, in Morse code, E, which is a very common letter in the English language, is a single dot. I is two dots, and A is a dot and a dash. On the other end of the spectrum, Q is represented by dash dash dot dash, which is the longest encoding for a letter, and tied with J and Q, which also have three dashes and a single dot, but in a different position. Another example would be sending a picture back from space of the night sky that's been taken by a telescope. Let's assume that the picture is a 2D array of pixels that are either black or white. Let's say 10 by 10 for the sake of simplicity for a total of 100 values. The bandwidth of sending messages down from space is low, so you're going to want to send the information efficiently. If you were to naively send the picture, as we've seen above with the forking paths, we would have to make a decision between black and white 100 times. And if we assume that these possibilities are equally probable for each pixel, then that's 100 bits of information. But what would we actually expect from a picture of the night sky? If the depth of the picture is not too high, then the stars in the sky are going to appear to be sparse. In other words, most of the picture will be black, and every once in a while, we'll see a white pixel. This tells us that our assumption that both colors are equally probable for each pixel actually overestimates the amount of information in a typical picture. If this is an overestimate, then there should be an encoding that's able to send these pictures using less information. What's an example of such an encoding? Let's say in a field of 100 pixels, we only expect about two of them to be white. Instead of sending the value of each pixel encoded with a binary digit, we could instead send the coordinates of the white pixels in the form of two single-digit numbers, 0 through 9, per white pixel. 
If one of the white pixels were near the center of the image, the coordinates might be 5, 4. And if one were near the corner, the coordinates might be 8, 9. Now, instead of 100 binary digits, our encoded message containing the image is simply 5489, which is a substantial savings over sending all 100 binary digits. Once that message is received on Earth, as we've discussed above, the message must be decoded. And once it is decoded, it can be turned back into exactly the image that we captured in space, because we have used a form of lossless compression, which, for images that are mostly black, is quite efficient. You could certainly be forgiven if, after hearing that last example, you thought that it sounded fairly contrived. What if we wanted to do something similar for a more typical image, let's say a 100 by 100 grayscale image, like you might have seen on the early days of the internet or in a DOS video game? Grayscale images seem quite general, so what can we do other than send, naively, the grayscale level of each individual pixel? If you think about images of natural objects, one tendency that's quite general is that adjacent pixels tend to have similar shades. To get a sense of how true this is, imagine an image where this is not at all the case, where the grayscale shade of one pixel is totally unrelated to the grayscale level of all of the pixels around it. Can you imagine being able to discern what such a picture was an image of? Given this regularity, this suggests that pictures of natural objects don't contain quite as much information as would be naively expected. But how can we practically exploit this? Imagine going row by row, starting with the top left pixel. To do the encoding, instead of writing down the absolute value of the grayscale for each pixel, first take the difference between the pixel and the previous pixel. 256 gray levels are commonly used in grayscale images, so in theory, these differences could be as large as 255, which would result from adjacent pixels having gray levels of 255 and 0. In practice, however, because of the tendency for adjacent pixels to be shaded similarly, these differences will be concentrated in a rel relatively narrow range, say between plus and minus 64. Now when you encode your images, Instead of each pixel taking on values between 0 and 255, each pixel only needs to take on values between plus and minus 64, which is a substantial savings. You may be worried that this representation is not completely general, because even in real images you may occasionally have differences that are larger than this, but it turns out that there are ways of patching up this representation that allow for lossless compression without significantly changing how much this allows you to compress the images. If you sent such an image, to someone, say, over the 1990s internet, all they would have to know is the process by which you compress the image, and they would be able to decompress it and enjoy exactly the same image that you saw while substantially saving on their dial-up internet bill. The above examples illustrate the concept of compression. And by learning how to optimally compress data that's generated in a certain way, we are forced to learn about the process that generated the data, even if we didn't think that we were interested in doing so to start with. 
In each case, you are exploiting some kind of regularity within the data to make the coding more efficient. From the above examples, in the case of telegraphy, some letters appear more often than others in English text, and so we chose to encode the commonly seen letters with short codes. In the case of the binary picture of the night sky, most pixels are black and few are white, and we chose to exploit that regularity by encoding explicitly only the locations of the white pixels. Finally, for grayscale images of natural objects, adjacent pixels are likely to be similarly shaded, so we used a difference encoding scheme to reduce the amount of information that needs to be sent. Many modern machine learning techniques exploit basically this same phenomenon using elements known as autoencoders, which intentionally create information bottlenecks to squeeze out the essential information from data. How does this relate to what we've been discussing so far this season? As we've seen, probability is at the heart of information theory. And as we discussed previously, probability is subjective, and therefore information is also subjective. Not all people learn the same amount from a given message. For the other guy in your friend circle, who already knows where your friend's house is, the message left, right, right doesn't convey any information because he already knows where the house is. Earlier in the season, I mentioned one way of organizing phenomenon, which was by their relevant spatial scales, with field and particle theories being on the smallest scales and cosmological theories being on the largest spatial scales. And subsequently, we discussed how there's another way to think about how phenomena are organized, and that's by the type of mathematical model that can be used to describe them. Is information theory a candidate for a bedrock theory like quantum field theories are on the shortest spatial scales, but along this second axis? Some scientists have expressed sentiments that suggest they believe something like this. A quote from Demis Hassabis, who is the CEO and co-founder of DeepMind, quote, the founding fathers of the modern computer age, Alan Turing, John von Neumann, Claude Shannon, all understood the central importance of information theory. And today, we have come to realize that almost everything can be either thought of or expressed in this paradigm. I believe that one day, information will become to be viewed as being as fundamental as energy and matter, close quote. Theories are the description of processes, and information is the currency of descriptions. Okay, this is just scratching the surface of information theory, but I think that's all we have time for this week. Next week, we may continue with information theory or move to the related field of decision theory. Stay tuned, and as always, thank you for listening.